Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bueri, and as always, I'm with someone who knows the physics behind quicksand, Dr. Lucy Jones. We'd like to thank the supporters and sponsors of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society who make this podcast and all our activities possible. Now, let's get to it. Whenever there's a big earthquake near the coast, or sometimes even not near the coast, there's two questions that seem to come up in the media, traditional or social, and that's, will there be a tsunami? And what about liquefaction? Those seem to be the questions we get asked a lot. We know from previous episodes that tsunamis happen when the shape of the seafloor changes and then moves water, usually inland, creating the tsunami. So an earthquake has to occur offshore for this to happen. But liquefaction is not quite as simple as that explanation. That's right. Simply put, liquefaction is when earthquake shaking makes a sandy soil behave like quicksand. And since quicksand does a poor job of holding up buildings, it can do a lot of damage. So what happens that makes it quicksand? Well, first, it only happens in certain types of soil. You need a loose soil without cohesion. Now, we know cohesion to mean people coming together, social cohesion. We talk about it a lot. What does it mean in this sense? Well, it means coming together and sticking together. A soil without cohesion means that the grains are separate, that you can dig into it like you dig into the sand at the beach. It's not a clay because the clay tends to stick together, and that means the pore spaces are small. Pore spaces are the spaces between the grains. To have liquefaction, you need to have a soil with lots of pore space. So when the earthquake happens, the seismic waves pass through the soil and compress it, just like shaking a canister of flour. You know, if you're pouring flour into a canister and you fill it up, but you have a little more you need to put in, you tap it on the counter and that makes the flour compress and you can put a bit more in. So the earthquake shakes the soil, compresses it. But ground compression alone doesn't create quicksand. We know that. What's happening in this circumstance now? Well, right. You need to have water in that pore space. If you've just got non-saturated soil, a very low water table, you compress that sand, you just get a bit of deformation at the surface. We call it ground deformation. But now if you filled up those pore spaces with water and you now compress the soil, that water can't disappear or go somewhere else just in the time of the earthquake. So it also gets compressed. That increases the pressure in the water. And the definition of quicksand is where the pressure in the water equals the weight of the sand and is able to hold the grains apart. So the earthquake creates a temporary quicksand that's there until the water can flow away. And so where does the water go if we're underground right now? Well, all right, it has to go somewhere. Often it'll burst through. In fact, the pressure will increase and it'll force the sandy water up through the top of the soil to the surface of the ground and it will form a little fountain. And we'll, afterwards, we'll see features that are called sand blows that look like tiny volcanoes where the water came out that way. And so the ground basically becomes quicksand for just a couple minutes, a couple moments even. And we know that this quicksand, even temporarily, can't hold buildings up. You said it earlier, right? Right. And, or pipes in the ground. So when you get liquefaction, you will see sometimes widespread damage. Neither the buildings or the infrastructure underground has support to keep them in place. So we've seen pictures like with the 1964 Nagata earthquake in Japan, where literally the building stayed in one piece, but because the foundation, the ground underneath it flowed away, 
it fell over on its side and slipped on down the hill. We also see widespread breakage of pipes. If you remember in the Northridge earthquake where we had fire fountains and such things, those are all places where the underground support for the pipes disappeared. I think one of the more recent common examples also is the Marina District in 1989, where you saw tremendous liquefaction and damage, like widespread damage. But this doesn't happen in every earthquake. We have other big earthquakes where we don't see this happening. Well, true. You need those pre-existing conditions, loose and saturated soil. A side note, drought in California has actually reduced the risk because we have a much lower water table in some places that might have otherwise had liquefaction don't because there's no water there. But you also need to have enough shaking. And it's not just the intensity of shaking. Lab experiments have shown that the critical conditions are shaking exceeding a certain threshold for enough cycles. So we need a longer duration. And if you remember from previous episodes, the duration of the earthquake is directly connected to the magnitude of the earthquake. So we rarely see liquefaction below about magnitude six and a half because it doesn't last long enough to produce the sufficient duration of shaking. Northridge had relatively limited liquefaction, and that was a combination both that it was quite a short duration for its size, and also the drought had drawn down the water table in a lot of locations. But you need to know very short duration, even if it's very high shaking, is less likely to produce liquefaction than that longer duration and perhaps at a lower level. Does the distance from the earthquake shaking matter based on what the soil conditions are. So if you have these soil conditions of the high porous area, water in those porous areas, but you're farther away, does that make your duration longer? It doesn't change your duration. It does reduce the intensity of shaking. But if it's a big enough earthquake, like the shakeout earthquake, we will see sufficiently high shaking and obviously long enough duration at a pretty large distance away from the fault. When we actually studied this for the shakeout scenario, what we discovered, though, is this drawing down of the water table has reduced our risk. And there were relatively limited areas of Southern California that have a shallow enough water table to produce liquefaction. One of the reasons we often see this by the beach, of course, you often have more sandy soil, but you also have a higher water table because the pressure from the ocean keeps the water table high near the coast. Besides being near the coast, how do you know if you're at risk? What you need to do is first know if you've got this susceptibility. And in fact, in California, the California Geological Survey has created a database. You can go online and put in your address and find out whether or not you have this type of soil. Now, this is only susceptibility. I said, if your water table is really low, you're not going to get liquefaction, even though you have that. And then you have to receive the strong enough shaking, which means you can't be too far from our really big faults. But Few of us in Southern California are far enough away from a big fault to be able to have that excuse. So you go to the website, you look it up. It says, oh, I'm susceptible. Let's say you find out that you're in a susceptibility zone. Then what do you do with it? If you've had the foresight to look at this database before you actually buy property and you see that, you might say, I don't think I want to take the risk. On the other hand, there may be something about the property that really makes it wonderful and worth having that risk. The one thing is if I was living in a liquefaction susceptibility zone, I would make sure I got earthquake insurance. Because if you get this situation, this is the type of situation where you could have enough damage to really need that full coverage that the earthquake insurance can give you. Well, let's leave it there for now. And until next time, I'm John Bwery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. 
Visit us online at drlucyjonescenter.org to get past shows and to access more information on this and other topics. Our music is performed by Josh Lee, and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. <laughs>